Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for today from the fourth chapter of St. Matthew, our gospel, the first verse. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. You've lost the battle, haven't you? Which of us can look at any temptation in life that we've ever had and say that we've consistently won against the temptation, against the tempter. Temptation is something with which we're all too familiar. And temptation, we know from our own experiences, is something with which we have been too vulnerable. Perhaps that's why, no matter if it's from Christian or non-Christian, there's been so much over the course of the ages that has been said by others about temptation. And we can just take a a look at a few quotes from those who weren't even necessarily sympathetic to the Christian faith, like H.L. Mencken, a 20th century critic of American life who once described temptation, which he knew from his own experiences, as being an irresistible force against a movable object. He defined it well, because that's what it is, an irresistible force against a movable object, we being those movable objects that change so much and go from one place to the other. Or there was Mark Twain, who knew well the nature of temptation, and thus he spoke of it saying, there's a charm about that which is forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. And how well we know that experience as well, the charm of the forbidden that makes it unspeakably desirable. Or Thomas Jefferson, who knowing about dangerous enticements of his own said, quote, do not bite at the bait of pleasure until you know that there's no hook beneath it. He too knew. Or 20th century American author Sam Levinson, who said, lead us not into temptation, just tell us where it is and we'll find it. It's true, too. It all too often has its way with us because we're not equal to the might of the tempter who's behind temptation. The tempter of whom Luther speaks when he writes in his great Reformation hymn, which we'll sing yet this morning, and he says, The old evil foe now means deadly woe, deep guile and great might are his dread arms in fight. On earth is not his equal. Little wonder that Luther then, having said that and having experienced the force of temptation in his own life from the old evil foe, from the tempter, no wonder that Luther in his morning prayer concludes it, as so many of us have memorized it and so often prayed it over the years by saying, Lord, into thy hands I commend myself, my body and my soul and all things. Let thy holy angel be with me that the wicked foe might have no power over me. He acknowledged the ready presence of the old wicked foe and the might that Satan had even to tempt, and he knew that of himself he was no match for the tempter of old. That old wicked foe may have no power over me. Luther, knowing from his own experience that this was indeed most certainly true, as he would say of so many things, acknowledges from the outset that apart from the intervening grace of God, we are of ourselves absolutely no match for the tempter of old, for the foe of ancient days that still is present even in our own, a truth reiterated in the second verse of A Mighty Fortress where he writes, with might of ours 
cannot, nothing, be done soon were our loss effected. How inclined we all are to underestimate the power of the evil one, including his own power to attract us and to entice us to do those very things that we know that we should not do. And we, with the pride of rugged individualism, that's nurtured even by the society and the world in which we live, that pride of rugged individualism, we somehow amazingly think of ourselves as being stout and stable enough to stand on our own. We think that we're somehow of ourselves principled enough to be able to say no to every temptation that comes our way. Luther knew differently. He knew that we didn't even have the potentiality of doing that, of standing apart from that, reflecting on his own experiences with temptation. He knew that temptation was all about. He knew how vulnerable we all are to it. An interesting book of personal letters, which Luther wrote to family members and friends and colleagues over the course of his world-shaking career, gives us some insights into Luther's view of temptation and how often he confronted it. In a letter to a friend, he calls temptation, quote, that worm within us that gnaws away daily at our consciences. Note well how he describes it. Temptation to Luther was not simply a force from without, something that came and attacked him from without. Rather, it was something that was in him, within him, gnawing away at his conscience. Internal, something that makes itself evident from inside, something common then to us all, indeed, long before Luther, in what the Germans used to call the Altwater book, the, the, old, the book of the old fathers, we read of this advice given to a young man who was struggling with particular temptations that he had. He bitterly wished that he could be free of all temptations, that he wouldn't have to live with the reality of temptation in his life. And the old fathers wrote to him and said, Dear brother, you can't be exempt from temptation any more than you can prevent the birds from flying in the air over your head. But you most certainly can prevent the birds from making a nest in your hair. And generations before Luther and before the old German father, St. Augustine, over 1,600 years ago, the great 4th century church father who prior to his conversion to Christianity most certainly knew what temptation was about and by his own admission all too often gave into it in ways of which he later would be so ashamed. And he said, we cannot prevent temptations from coming upon us, but by prayer and the invocation of divine assistance, we can most certainly defend ourselves and keep temptation from overcoming us. But only through that divine intervention, only through the power of that which was from without. And so you see, whether it's in our generation, or Luther's generation, or that of the old German Altwalter book, or the age of St. Augustine, or the age of King David before him, or the age of Moses before him, or the age of Abraham before him, or going all the way back as we did in the Old Testament lesson today to our first parents, to Adam and to Eve. In each and in every generation of time, temptation has always been taking man on, and temptation has always been winning out. To deny it is to deny all of human history. 
throughout history has simply been a force within and from without man, which man in and of himself has been unable to control and he's unable to conquer. Why? Because in and of our sinful selves, none of us, none of our progenitors before us, none of our progeny after us, has ever or ever will be able to outwit the outwitter of the ages. The old evil foe, as Luther called him, Satan, as scripture calls him, the tempter. Think of the different names by which he's called in sacred writ. The old evil foe, Satan, the tempter, the destroyer and the deceiver, the father of lies, Beelzebub, the lord of the flies, the prince of the devils, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the angel of darkness, who St. Paul says disguises himself then as an angel of light, our accuser, scripture calls him your adversary, the devil, who St. Peter says prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour, the relentless pursuer, the tempter of men's souls, who Luther says has gathered, quote, so much experience from the very beginning of the world and has been made more cunning by daily practice of it all. Indeed, he says, if he finds it impossible to overcome us by the greatness of the temptation he puts before us, he then tries to overcome us by persevering in temptation until he finally has worn us out. Or as someone has more recently said, opportunity may knock only once, but temptation leans against the doorbell. And how true it is. Believe me, I know how comically or how uncomfortably unacceptable such things are to our supposed scientific minds in our scientific day and age where we explain everything of this nature away. Minds trained not only to deny the evil that's embodied in a being, and that evil can be embodied in a being as it is in Satan, but minds which are also reluctant to acknowledge that evil even exists in our world, insisting on the innate goodness of man and uncomfortable with any notion of evil that extends beyond a few exceptional Hitlers of history, many if not most in our day would write Satan off denying his existence, simply saying that he's nothing more than an ancient mythology. Many, if not most, in our day would indeed deny his very existence. But dear believing friends, Satan, as we certainly would confess and say, Satan could care less if modern man acknowledges his existence. After all, he works best in time shadows. He gladly remains unidentified in the shadows of man's spiritual ignorance and in the shadows of man's denials until that day finally of his public exposure when that day arrives, that end time day when he with glee will assume his judgment day post as the principal prosecutor of all of mankind. He doesn't mind at all hiding in the shadows of time until that day comes. But ask our Lord Jesus if this Satan that the world today would deny is real. Ask him what happened in our text for today as you heard it read. Ask him what 
what it was then that he spent 40 days and 40 nights without in the wilderness if it wasn't that personal entity and that personal being that we call Satan. The reality that, that was there, ask him if it was but a mere thought in his mind or as but some nightmarish imagination of his. Was it only hallucination? Ask him about what it was that tempted him in his hunger to turn the hardest and the coldest of desert stones into the softest and the warmest loaves of oven-baked bread. Ask him what it was that enticed him to sacrifice his sacrificial role for which he'd been sent into the world to be the savior of all of mankind and to give that up that he might find the easier way as Satan tempted him to do, to renounce the way of the cross by throwing himself into a magnificent angelic flight off the temple top so that he could prematurely assume a role of kingly glory instead of having to go from the wilderness experience to what he knew would be ahead of him, namely his work upon the cross for the salvation of mankind. Ask him if this was a personal and a real entity that was there before him. Ask him what, what offered him all the kingdoms of the world, if only he would bow down and worship it. Ask him if Satan is real. And you know, you know what the answer of our Lord Jesus Christ would be. Now in the face of such an evil reality that's attested to by no less an authority than our Lord Jesus Christ himself, what would we do? We're not him. In struggling with what St. Paul says and identifies as being not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, wickedness in heavenly places, he says, where would we go? And facing a foe that we can't even see, but we know is real and is there. Where would we go? What will our defense be in the face of temptations that lure us from the tempter who would destroy us? It won't do to do what some of those in the past have suggested because they're as foolish as was Homer's mythological hero Odysseus. Remember that ancient Greek epic written by Homer hundreds of years before our Lord's birth and, and how Homer's mythological hero and what he did to prevent his men as they were out in the boat from hearing this tempting voice of the sirens and the songs of the sirens at sea. What was it that, that Odysseus did? Plug the ears of his men, his sailors, with wax so that they couldn't hear the sirens singing their songs from without. Their irresistible call, it won't do. Because temptation's call is not simply a call from without us from sirens at sea, confined to a certain area or place. Temptation's call is all too often a siren's call from within. The luring call of the most seductive siren of all, the luring call that's spoken of by James, the brother of our Lord, who said each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So James, the brother of our Lord, the apostle, in the face of temptation, my friends, wax in the ears won't work. As much as we'd like to think it would be that simple. 
It won't work to cut ourselves off from the world around us. In fact, cutting ourselves off from the world around us in the time of temptation is about the worst thing that we can do. By all means, Luther says, flee solitude. In the time of temptation, flee solitude. For the devil watches, he says, and lies in wait for you most of all when you are alone. Remember Eve? No wonder idleness is the devil's workshop. Flee from solitude. But what does he say to do? You flee to Christ. That's the only place to go on the time of temptation. You don't look inside of yourself for strength to endure. Indeed, you go outside of yourself and you flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to the Lord Christ who conquered Satan when he was tempted by him for 40 days and nights in the wilderness. You go to Christ who conquered Satan when looking at his Disciple Peter, who tried to dissuade Christ from going on to the way of the cross, what did Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. You go to Christ, who conquered Satan after he'd entered into Judas, and he betrayed our Lord. You go out of yourself and you go to Christ, Luther says, to Christ who is the sacrifice of God for the sins of the world, in whom the devil, death, and sin have all been crucified, as Luther says, they've been conquered. In this Christ, Scripture says, we don't have a, a high priest who cannot sympathize with, our, with us in our weaknesses, but rather we have one who has been, as it says, tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, Scripture says, draw near unto him with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and that we then might find grace to help us in our time of need. That's where you go. You go to Christ. You go outside of yourself. You go to Christ. And in the name of Christ, you pray the petition that will soon pray, the concluding petition of the prayer that Christ himself taught us to pray. He said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And you can pray that prayer confidently. Lead us not into temptation. Pray it confidently because you know why you won't be led into temptation. Why? Because Christ was led into temptation for you. Even as our text today says, quote, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why did God the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the desert? To be tempted. By whom? By the devil. For whom? For you. Tempted for you. Tempted in your stead. And coming out on top of it all, he kept the law perfectly for you. He did exactly what perfection requires of you in the face of temptation. He was perfect for you, and now he takes that perfection in time of temptation that he won and he applies it to you as he did through holy baptism. He gives you his righteousness as he does through word and sacraments. His perfection in the face of temptation becomes yours. And so it is that our epistle lesson today says is by one man's disobedience, namely Adam's, the many became sinners. So by one man's obedience, namely that of Christ, the many are made righteous. Think of that as you pray, and lead us not into temptation. And then as you pray, but deliver us from evil, 
Remember how it was that the Lord delivered you from evil from all of those times that you have yielded to temptation and sinned by so doing. He's delivered you from that evil through his cross. That's where he delivered you from evil. The equation of salvation requires both. It necessitated that he not only provide you with his perfection, but that he also become your sin for you so that he could pay off its penalty on the cross. And that he did. And so it is that St. Paul says that he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. How? By nailing it, he says, to the cross. Christ became sin for us in order that in him we might be, as St. Paul says, the righteousness of God. And that we are. And that by God's grace will ever be. And that's what enables us in the face of every temptation and even in the face of Satan himself to confidently say what Luther first said and what Luther first sang. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, for they shall not overpower us. The world's prince may still scowl, fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged. The deed is done. One little word shall fell him. And that little word that fells him is Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.